Heavenly Father, now as we turn our hearts to your word, as we, as we slow down now and we give attention to what you say in these two powerful, potent verses, Lord, I pray that you would give us good ears to hear and hearts to receive. And so many, so many of us, Lord, are present here with a, a sort of a Martha spirit from the story in the Gospels of, of the sister who is so busy with so many things and so anxious and so uh, upset by them. And we are anxious and we are upset. And so now, Lord, I pray that you would, as Anita started us off with, would you gather us? Would you gather us? Give us hearts to hear you, uh, ears to hear you, and hearts to receive your word and gather our attention to this moment. This is your moment. This is a moment for, for us to connect. And of course, you are everywhere and you're speaking all the time. But Lord, we, we want to hear from you. That's why we're here now. And so I pray, Lord, that you would bless this time, that the, the word of the Lord would run and be glorified in our hearts, that the word of Christ would dwell in us richly. So be with us now as we turn to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Does God have favorites? That's always sort of a, a tender question for families, right? Who's the favorite? Grandparents, parents, right? Who's the favorite? And everybody's kind of like, well, I don't have favorites. Right? We're never allowed to say that. But, but does God have favorites? God kind of. Or does he? Should he? Should God have favorites? No, God should just love everybody the same. There should be no variation in that. But kind of a big part of the premise for the Bible story is that God has favorites, right? He blesses. We ask him to. We say, show us favor. Bless us. And God does this. Does God have favorites? He does have favorites. How does that work? Wouldn't you like to know, right? How many people, how many of us wander around life and we just think, God, why are you doing this to me? God, you're, you know... I don't understand. How come you don't? Well, I mean, first of all, you're probably completely misunderstanding the situation. But also, we would want to know, how do I get in the favorites? How does God show me his favor? How does he bless me? Now, this favor and blessing work of God is associated throughout the Old Testament, as is God's nature and position, with kingship. Right, and so the expression for how kings show favor to somebody or bless them is it's, it's, it says that the, they look upon you with favor. They, they, they look upon you, they look to you with blessing, right? So it's in the, in the attention of God, what he looks upon, that his favor comes to rest upon them. I mean, what we see throughout the Bible is that God sees all things but that he gives special attention to certain things. We see in our passage here, Isaiah 66, we see God's lofty position in verse 1, heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. We start in verse 2, he says, all these things my hand has made, all these things came to be through me. And yet, how many services do we conclude with Tony uh, blessing us, saying, may the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face to shine on you and be gracious to you and lift up his smile on you, his countenance upon you and give you peace. But God is in this place where he sees everything, but we want him to see us specially. 
We desperately want to be what he looks upon with favor. To, to disparate pieces of media in my life yesterday, I thought, both of these are kind of about this subject. Janisha and I went and watched a, a romantic comedy. And uh, what are all the premise of all romantic comedies is sort of like a, that, that the people would come to, to really look at and discover the person that they already are seeing, right? That, that they would look upon each other with this kind of favor. And I'm also reading about the Wright brothers in the beginning of Flight. And how they were able to fly in part because they were really good bicyclists. When you're a bicyclist, what do you look at? Right? The ground, the pedals, the you look at your point. Right? What you look at, what you what you give attention to determines so much. So this this image of the king looking upon us with favor, right? This is all of a this is a metaphor, right? God doesn't have a throne that he sits on or eyeballs and optic nerves that he employs to to discover what's happening. He doesn't turn his head, right? He never turns his head. But these are metaphors from our experience. This is the way that we are. We, we look at the things that we like. We look at the things that we want to pay attention to. We look at the things we want to keep an eye on. So, what we want, what we find useful, what aligns with our interests are things that we look on. Right? Every, every TV police procedural show, every detective show, what do they always tell you? Watch the eyes. Watch the suspect's eyes. They will reveal their values. They will reveal what they think is most important. They will reveal what they love. So this question, what does God look upon? This is very important. And I just want to succinctly give this to us for two reasons. Why God why what God looks upon is a very important question. Because, first of all, that's going to be the place where God's presence will be encountered and His work will be enjoyed. Where God is looking is the place that His presence is going to be encountered. We talked about Zacchaeus on uh, Maundy Thursday a week and a half ago. And Zacchaeus climbs that sycamore tree, right, and waits there because he wants to be in that place where Jesus might give, where God through Jesus might give him attention and that he might there through that attention meet with God that Jesus will look upon Zacchaeus with favor and Zacchaeus will experience God there we want to be where God's presence can be encountered we want to be where God is at work we want to be wherever that that portal is to God we want to be there and the second reason why this is a very important thing is because it's a value statement this is a very important subject. What is the most important thing for our lives? Or what is the most valuable thing? Whatever God is attentive to, that's the right thing to value. That's the right thing to build your life upon. That's the right thing to build your life around because that is the valuable thing. That is the place to be. Right? So many of us go through life like uh, Steve Martin and the Jerk. You remember at the end of that movie where all of his life comes crashing down on him and he's, he's all broken and sad and sorrowful and he says, I don't need you or anything or anybody, just this lamp. That's the only thing I need. And, and I don't need you or anybody or anything else in all the world, just this lamp and this chair. And this is how we operate in life. What's most important to us? And we're like, this car, this job. And God's like, okay, you're not getting it. So we, wanna, we want to look at what God is looking at. 
And what, what we learn is that God is present to, He works through, He values certain kinds of people in a way that He doesn't, He's not present with, He doesn't employ other people. It's kind of a radical thing, but it's an important one if we want to get around God. So the key question this morning is, who or what, where does God look with favor? Israel, like so many people, so many cultures, the world over, history over, they thought that they had that, they thought that the answer was easy and obvious. And we'll get to their easy and obvious answer in just a question, in just a moment. But I want to pause and think about the context of Isaiah 66. Think about the context of Isaiah 66, right? Because not everybody, and I bet most of us, weren't asking this question this morning. God, where are you looking with favor? We're not asking that question. The people in our workplaces, our family members, our neighbors, they're not asking, God, where are you present? Where are you working? What, is, what are you giving special attention to in this world right now? That's the kind of question that people ask when they don't have power. When they don't have control over their circumstances. When they don't have a sense of agency. Then they ask, God, where are you at work? I want to align myself with you now because I am clearly out of the positions of power and influence anymore. It's the kind of question asked by Israel in Isaiah 66. So if there's, there's sort of three chapters in Isaiah, uh, a section before they go into exile, before they're judged, a section while they're in exile in Babylon being judged, and now they're back from exile, but there's still a vassal state. Is that a word that anybody knows? There's still like a sub-state, like a feeder system for Babylon and Assyria and these other great empires. So, like, the kingdom, their, like, king and their, is gone. Their military is gone gone. Their, their economy is gone. Imagine America with no presidents, no senates, no congress, no military, no economy. Nothing. So now, of course, now they're looking to God for help. Now everybody's really pious. Now they're wondering if maybe God can help them and return them to a sense of control. So I just want to start this morning with us. Let's just, let's just pause and, and see, like, what is our relationship to this even question? Do we care about this? Do we want God's presence? Do we want Him to work in our lives? Well, let me just ask it this way. Are you doing fine? Are you kind of doing fine? Or do you need Him? Or when you think about why I'm here and God, here's what I want. I want this. I want this other thing. I want more money. I want more power, position, clarity, possessions. I want this other thing. This is a really important question. What is it going to take for us to get to look to Him? I meet with a number of, a lot of different kinds of people. There's a certain kind of person I meet with who kind of wants to meet with pastors so that pastor will sort of sign off on their nonsense. Right? Take my side in this, in this debate or, or take my position here and understand me. And, and to them I ask, does God have your attention? I mean, I, I like, I think you're fine. Like, you don't need me to sign off on anything. But if God doesn't have your attention, just, you know, go do your thing. Does God have our attention? Do you want God to get your attention? 
Maybe we should just give God our attention. All right, so Israel thinks that they have an answer to this question. What does God look to with favor? They think they've got this. Of course, we, we know what he looks to with favor. God blesses extraordinary religious effort. And I put it up here as, with a big knot there because sometimes Janisha tells me that I say things very confidently, but I'm, I'm actually saying like the, neg- the wrong thing. But then she says, like, people don't always listen to everything I'm saying. So then they just hear that part and they think, wait, what? So it's up here to kind of counterbalance that effect. Uh, the answer that Israel had was that God blesses extraordinary religious effort, which is not just unique to Israel. Every culture, everywhere, all religions, right? The more effort you put into it, probably the more God is going to bless you. In this context, their, their focus of their extraordinary effort is building this temple. You see this in verse 1. The subject, if you look at the second half of verse 1, is the house that you're trying to build me. What is this house that you would build for me? What is the place of my rest? They're trying to build a temple to please God. This is a big deal, right? This is a really big deal, especially for this group. We saw on Good Friday all of the different gifts and money that was going into building the temple. $12 billion worth of gold among other precious metals and precious stones. Like a huge thing. Now they've got like a fraction of the people and a fraction of the resources and they're going to make a go of it. Boy, this is going to bring a lot of favor on them from God, right? This is kind of how they're feeling about it. But it's not just that. It's, it's all of the religious things that we do to earn favor from God. Look down to verse 3. We see some of the other things that they're doing. He says, He who slaughters an ox is like one who kills a man. He who sacrifices a lamb like one who breaks a dog's neck. He who presents a grain offering like one who offers pig's blood. He who makes a memorial offering of frankincense like one who blesses an idol. We'll talk a little bit more about that. But these are the other things that Israel is doing in an attempt to get God to look at us, to God to look upon us with favor. So what are, what are the things that we tend to think of God looks upon that with favor? You know, sometimes this is a part of our cost-benefit analysis, right? I can keep doing this as long as I make sure I keep doing this. God will keep me generally in favor as long as I keep kind of doing these things, right? So whether it's special giving or gifts to the church or to other nonprofits or missions, ministry activity or social activism, some people go instead of external, right? They're not extroverts, they're internal. So theirs is all about moral purity. I just need to make sure I'm Really, like I don't watch any bad movies. I don't listen. I don't. I'm just really morally pure. Uh, some people focus on uh, taking a more blue collar approach to their relationship with God and spiritual effort. I'm just a hard worker. You know, I'm not much for church stuff, but I'm a hard worker and I'm devoted to my family and my country. And and then some people are really churchy. I'm just super involved in church. And so and so God will protect me. And so God will bless me and show me favor. Now, the logic of this is very evident. God is religious. That's proposition A. Everybody loves extraordinary, acts of extraordinary effort. Right? We, we, love to, we love the Olympics, right? We love sports. We love to see people do amazing things. God's religious. Everyone loves extraordinary effort. God will love extraordinary religious effort. It's a pretty straightforward logical sequence but it's based off the idea that god sees what we see and god values what we value because we're kind of the same right us and god eh. we are very much not the same 
His ways are not our ways. So there's two big problems with what Israel's trying to do right now. I think it's important to connect with before we move on. The first, as we see here in verses uh, 1 and, and 2a, he says, Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made, so all things came to be, declares the Lord. I mean, what is God saying here? He's saying, guys, the temple, I mean, why though? Like, I'll use it, but don't imagine I need it or that it's like my house. I'm not like other gods that needs a house. Don't you know who I am? They've got a very flawed idea of God, which is connected to a very flawed idea of themselves, which is the second big problem here. They have this idea, the phrase, I will do it. And it's sort of divided into three, three sections. I can do it. Right? I have the ability. I can trust myself. I will do it. I will be able to bring about the thing that I have planned, and I will do it. I will do the thing that matters most. I will do it. They're trusting themselves. They're ignoring their sinfulness. They're ignoring God's word. Look at what God says in verses 3 to 4. Let's read this again. It's kind of grody, right? But let's read it again and get kind of what God is saying here. It says, The one who slaughters an ox is like one who kills a man. He who sacrifices a lamb like one who breaks a dog's neck. He who presents a grain offering like one who offers pig's blood. In case you don't know much about the Bible stuff, like, that's bad. I mean, who wants really pig blood anyways? But this is like extra bad for the Israelites. He who makes a memorial offering of frankincense like one who blesses an idol. These have chosen their own ways and their soul delights in abominations. He's saying all of your religiosity, all of your extraordinary effort is just a veneer for your self-will. Your sense of getting what you want with no reference to me, no interest in me. I mean, we tend to think that God should love religious effort. Just love it. But the truth is a little more complicated. I mean, of course, God, right, the Bible's all full of, like, do these religious activities, right? But always as an expression of love and an expression of a relationship. Right, so guys, if you come home with a bouquet of flowers for your wife, remember the last time you did that? Let's see. You come home with a bouquet of flowers, and you say, and your wife says, oh my goodness, these are so beautiful, thank you so much. And you say, well, I thought maybe if I brought flowers, we get something different for supper once in a while. What's going to happen to the flowers? <laughs> right? They go whack you upside the head with those flowers. The thing that she loves in the, in the, relationship of a, in the context of a relationship, now she hates. Right? Or guys, you come home and right, there's the smell of cooking meat and you know, baking bread and you're, you're, you're excited. What is, you know, this is, I'm so excited about this. And, and your wife says, well, I thought maybe if I made you some food, you'd buy me some flowers once in a while. What would you do? You'd eat it. You'd be, you'd be fine with that. <laughs> you'd be like, okay, I'll, I'll, eat, I'll eat it, sure. No. This is how God views our religious activity. So what does God look upon with favor? Now let's look at verse 2. Here's really the, the point of this verse, the point of these two verses here, the point of this chapter. This is the one to whom I will look, the one who is humble and contrite in spirit 
and trembles at my word. Humble, contrite, trembles at my word. And I want, before we get into thinking about what those each mean, I want to say this right out on the, the front edge. You guys, we all, churchish people, we hear these words, humble and contrite. Like contrite, is that a word? Who says contrite? Who says humble? Right? Humble, contrite, and trembles at the word of God. And we just automatically think that these are religious characteristics. That, like, that what God is saying is uh, uh, the one I'm looking for is prim, proper, and pure. Or clean, classy, and kind. Like I'm just looking for these sort of like religious attributes. Church people. These are actually very uh, irreligious words. They're not associated with religious activity anywhere else in the Bible. So what, what Isaiah is saying here, what God is saying here through Isaiah, he's describing the condition of the human spirit after certain kinds of trauma. Let me say that again. Certain kinds of trauma put us in a spiritual place that we don't like, right? After an illness or an injury. It's not just your body that's affected, it's your spirit, isn't it? After an illness, after an injury, after a season of addiction or a, some severe loss in your life, you are put in a spiritual place. That's what these words have reference to. This isn't like, now by the end of our service today, I want you all to feel humbler. I, don't, I want you all to be like, contriting yourselves. This is something that happens to us, which happens to every single one of us. So what is it when he says, this is the one to whom I will look, the one who is humble. This is the person, and this is sort of cleaned up here, but this is the person who knows their weaknesses and their dependence upon God. Like, do you know it? Most other places this word is translated in the Old Testament, it's translated afflicted or oppressed. This is as great a difference from our idea of humble as is the, the difference between humble and humiliated. Right? So after you win, if you win the championship, if you win the race and they're interviewing you, right, you're the winner and you say, well, I'm just so thankful for my trainers. I'm just so thankful for my support team. I'm just so thankful for my parents who supported me all along. Right? That's a humble person. You know who's a humiliated person? is the person who's still trying to get to the finish line while the interview's happening. That's the humiliated person. That's this person. Not the person who's like, well, I'm the best, but let me show you some additional features of my greatness by being humble. This is the person who is humiliated. The person who is contrite in spirit. Again, this word contrite is most other places translated uh, broken or just beat up. This is the person who knows themselves to be bad at good things. You're bad at good things. I'm trying. I'm not getting good at it. Because you know yourself to be sinful, and you know your sinful tendencies, and they, and you hate them. And you hate them. Uh, the, the contrite in spirit, we would translate as, as one other sort of church Bible word, and that's repentance. But there's, the, there's two different kinds of repentance. There's the repentance as a sort of act of prudence. Like, I should probably repent from this thing. I can see that this isn't going to go well. And then there's repentance as an act of desperation. If I don't make this change, I'm gone. That's what this is. That's what this is talking about. I, do, you, do you know your sinfulness and your sinful tendencies? Are you playing around? And then the last thing is the one who trembles at the Word of God. They know the significance of God's Word. And I'm going to take the, take the religious 
you know, sheen off that in a second here. But this is what Peter says after Jesus tells everybody to eat his body and drink his blood and everybody leaves and he turns to the disciples and says, how about you? And Peter says, I mean, we'd love to leave you, Jesus, but where else are we going to go? You have the words of life. You have the words of life. This word, tremble, is in most other places translated fear or afraid. This is a person who is afraid to live without God's word. Are you afraid to live without God's word? I'll tell you what, this is not something that characterizes me every day. I wake up in the morning and I know what's going on. I know what we're doing. I know how we're going to get there. I am not afraid to go about my day without consulting with the word of God first. The person who is afraid to live without God's word. Right, obviously the word of God is going to have a powerful effect on their lives. They're going to, the word for this is obey. Does that characterize our lives? Obeying? Or more like disobeying, but thankful for God's grace. We're not going to... We're not going to tremble at God's word. We're not going to be afraid to live without God's in our life. If we're still full of our sense of ability and full of our sense of like, well, I'm not that bad. I kind of got it. I mean, the, the central idea this morning is that what God looks for is not what we look for. What we look for, what we look upon with favor, what we value is not what he looks upon with favor and values. We want glory, he's looking for humility. We want competence in people, and he's looking for need. We're looking for intelligence, and he's looking for good listeners. This last year, there was this, uh, this, this significant podcast in the Christian leadership community called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. Any of you listen to that podcast just a couple people that i encourage to listen to it uh it's a powerful journalistic long-form podcast journalism for those of you who are kind of podcast wonks uh long-form podcast journalism deep diving into the leadership of of the, the rise and fall of mars hill church in seattle washington pastor mark driscoll a name that maybe some of you might know and what is revealed over the course of this uh, the series of podcasts is something that we've kind of all known for a long time, but is put on very clear display here, which is that there is a tension in the church and a tension in our hearts between what we think of as a great church leader and, and a person through whom God wants to work. That there is a tension there and a gap. There is a gap in our view of the universe between what we think makes a great church leader and what God thinks makes somebody through whom he wants to work. We tend to look for people who are, right, so, so God is not interested in people who are handsome or fit, smart, funny, charming, well-connected, connected, creative, or hardworking. It's not that those things are bad. They just don't matter to the work of God. Okay, bananas are not bad, but you're going to have an awful hard time using one as a hammer to build a house or a doghouse or a birdhouse. It just isn't bad. It just doesn't matter to what God wants to see done. What does matter? People who know that they need. Who know that they need and they cry out to God for strength. And cry out to God for healing. 
and cry out to God for direction and guidance. Because they're the ones following God that we want to follow. Right? They're the ones healed by the grace of God who can give that healing to others. They're the ones powered by the power of God who can, who, through whom God is going to work. Exhibit A for these things, of course, is our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the ultimate person through whom God is present, through whom God works. Now you might say, well, Jesus didn't need any of this stuff. He didn't need to be humble. He didn't need to be contrite in spirit. He didn't need to tremble at God's word. Right? Jesus kind of like he kind of like wrote God's word, right? Like whatever he said was like, that's God's word, which is kind of how most of us live, but we don't have what he has for that. What Jesus had the least need to embody these things. He had the least need for these things, but he's the one that saw most clearly that dependence on God is the best way to live. And that the, the horrors of sin are, are, we want to get as far away from them as we can. And that God's word is so, so beautiful and so true that why would I want to take any action in my life without consulting the word of God? Right? He had the least need for these things, but he saw them the most clearly. He saw them the clearest. And so, therefore, he embodied them the most. And so, as we close, let me just encourage us this morning to try to see these truths more clearly. To try to see these truths more clearly. I mean, this is, what am I talking about? I'm talking about confession. I'm going to talk about confession and prayer and reading the Bible. Right? We're not talking about building the temple or contributing billions of dollars. Not that if you wanted to, that would be such a terrible thing. But that was a, that was a property church building joke. We're talking about very basic things. Talking about very basic things. Like, what do you tell a new believer? Like, what do you tell somebody who's not even a believer about how to approach God? You say, well, confess your need for Him and ask Him and then listen to His Word. It's very, very basic, very basic things. But first of all, friends, just tell the truth. In the words of Jordan Peterson, tell the truth, at least don't lie. At least don't lie. What's the truth? The truth is that I deeply need God. The truth is that we are deeply sinful. The truth is that we desperately need God's word. And the, the Bible word for this, or the church word, is confession, which is, which is literally just to say the same thing as, to say it with. I just confess it. Why don't we confess our sins? Let me make one suggestion here as sort of a practical step. We have very little space in our life for reflection. Very little space in our life for reflection. Like, the, 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 the place for reflection in the modern world is the car. But what are we mostly doing in our cars? Not reflecting. Almost like we're avoiding something, isn't it? What are we avoiding? We're avoiding the moment of truth. Tell the truth and then act, act the truth. Just kind of a clunky phrase, but it gets to, gets to something here. Acting the truth means praying and reading the Bible. Praying and interacting with Scripture. I know some, some aren't readers out there. That's all right. Praying and interacting with Scripture. Now you might say, well, hang on. Those are religious acts. We shouldn't be doing religious acts. Well, it's complicated, but let me just put it simply here. These are religious acts designed to align us with reality. Right? These are religious acts that God says, if you do these things, these will help you be aligned with reality. Like, what's reality? Reality is that I need God. 
reality is that I need his word. The truth is we desperately need God and his word. Friends, these are the basic elements of a truthful life. We're not talking about we're not talking about some extraordinary thing. We're not talking about you like walking around with a halo or a glow. We're just trying to bring us back to not lying to ourselves all the doggone time. These are the basic elements of a truthful life. And these are the basic elements of a people that God looks upon. God is looking for people like this. And he's always looking for people to work through. But God's different than us. He does more with less. And so he thinks more highly of those who are more lowly. Which I'd say is good news, because I think we all qualify for that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Even when it's sort of like a wet cloth across the face here, waking us up. Father, we, we come before you this morning as a people who, in truth, are very weak. We are very silly and very foolish. And we desperately need you in our lives. And Lord, we are people who are deeply sinful and, and deeply tend to sin. And even should we, uh, quote-unquote, get victory over some sin that we're fixated on right now, there's, there's more waiting in the wings. Lord, we need your healing. We need your grace. And Lord, we're a people who, we can't even see the past that clearly, let alone the future. Lord, we need your word to shine a light on our path and to be a lamp for our feet. And Lord, we are those people. We need these things from you. And so, Lord, we ask now today that you would help us to remember these things, help us to know them in a way that we haven't known them in a while. So, Lord, we pray that we would be these people that you look upon, these people that you work through in this world. We want to be on the inside, Lord. We don't want to be on the outside anymore. And so we ask that you would watch over this word. In Jesus' name, amen.